Now, our Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Praising you, Father. We're thinking very seriously and very carefully upon what it means to come to the Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So thankful. We know, Father, that we cannot come to you through any other means except through the one that you gave to die in our place for our sins. Now, our Lord, as we enter to this part of worship, where we're seeking to know, to understand, to apply truth to life, we're asking that there will be a sense of extraordinary wisdom, not only in service prior, this service for those that are now watching online, We'll be watching online in days to come. Pour your spirit out in a very unique, distinctive way, we pray. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Join with me as we're looking at this particular picture that appears on the screen. And it's a picture of a, a Jewish family. And it's very clear that uh, the father now is guiding, directing, instructing as they're reflecting upon, upon biblical principles of the past, of the Older Testament, and as the, he's guiding and directing them as to apply truth to life. What fascinates is if you've spent any time in Israel is that uh, when it comes to the whole matter of the family table, which is where they're at, generally speaking, you're not going to see counters with bar stools where everybody's looking in the same direction. But instead, what you're going to find is that there is the family table. Rather than people looking away from one another, people are looking at one another. They're engaged in conversation. They're involved in discussion. They are grappling with the ways in which you, you take the wisdom and you apply it to the matter of life on life's journey. Struck, aren't you, by modern-day architecture and what it offers in comparison to the idea of the family home and the family dinner table and the way in which truth gets poured out into the journey of life itself. That's what's happening in this picture. And if you are privileged like I am to have had a father who knows Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior, it's where wisdom gets imparted. Relational wisdom, directional wisdom, as we try to manage this journey that God's placed us on, all for God's glory. For you see, you're at a point of time now in your study of the Psalms, where we find ourselves somewhere right in the heart of the what is known as the Songs of Ascent from Psalms 120 through Psalm 134, 15 of them, and the halfway point is Psalm 127 leading into 128. Why? As the people were returning from exile, say from Babylon and so on, the Jewish people were going to have to settle down in this new land. 
and they were going to have to start structuring their family units. How would they go about doing it? Well, they have been singing along the way the various songs of ascent leading them toward Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, subsequently, in all likelihood, Jesus would have sung these songs with Joseph and Mary at his side, pondering his heavenly father while looking at the earthly father and grappling with how you apply truth to life in light of God's mission for him where the second member of the Trinity went to die for your sins and die for mine. So our Lord would have known these verses very well and in various ways, shapes, or form would have extracted the principles and applied them to his ministry. What we want to do is to draw out four aspects here of what I will call biblical wisdom as it relates to the home that's found in Psalm 127 and 128, penned by Solomon, to help us better navigate the journey that God has placed us on. First comes out of verse 1, and again in verse 2, and we're going to pen it like this to start off, that as you and I, as we apply wisdom to the home, well, what we want to do is to note, first of all, the conditions that our Lord sets and you see it here in verse 1, verse 2. Notice very carefully with me that this Song of Ascents is of Solomon. Uh, we have previously spotted his authorship in Psalm 72. Now again now, this is being applied as they've made their way, these pilgrims, into Jerusalem. And notice the two conditional phrases that leap out of verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So now what we find the psalmist doing at this point is that he is laying down the conditions whereby as the Jewish people have made their way into Jerusalem, let's say it's exile, and it's time now to construct their houses, to settle down, to be able to begin again, <coughs> here is an opportunity for them to understand what we might call first things. Where do you begin? With whom do you begin? You begin with the Lord. And Solomon's words were meant to be applied to modern-day life. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor, labor in vain. Now you can imagine as they're making their way up the hillsides toward Jerusalem in these songs of ascent, that it's very possible that at a certain point, Father pulls the family aside and says, this reminds me of a time that we've been told about where Joshua challenged the family, the church, the community, the Israelites with these words. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served far beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river 
or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But now get this and apply it now to this opening phrase, this opening condition in verse 1. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, the household, the family unit, those who build it labor in vain. Jesus, Jesus is on his way, you see, with his parents. Uh, it's the Passover. And for some odd reason, in the midst of one of these journeys to Jerusalem, Joseph nor Mary can find Jesus. And we're told by the physician in Luke 2 that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father, fascinating, your father and I have been searching for you and in great distress. How did he answer? He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And so when you study the Psalms very carefully, you know that sometimes this pertains to the household. Other times, house carries with it the idea of the temple what we see is a merge that takes place here. And he wants us to understand the centrality of the Lord in the midst of all this. And who is to be the one who is constructing this household? It is the Lord. And it's the Lord alone. And we grasp that. You know, if you ever make your way to London, there is this famous setting known as the Rothschild home. And what's interesting is that there is one particular room that is not and has been left incomplete. Now, Rothschild was an Orthodox Jew. And in line with Jewish tradition, he deliberately allowed one part of his home to remain unfinished so as to remind himself and all others, including the next generations, that like Abraham, they were strangers and pilgrims, as he put it, upon this earth. And you're with a tour guide. And the tour guide now, guiding you through this home, will pause at this point and inform you and inform me of what Lord Rothschild himself said, quote, this is not Lord Rothschild's home. He's traveling from here to eternity. Now, 
when you and I are in the process of constructing a home, what we've got to bear in mind is that people are on a journey to eternity. And life is filled with what I will call a series of incomplete experiences in the here and now. All of which is preparation for the fulfillment still to come if we put our faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. So you've seen the first condition. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor, you see, labor in vain. And at that point, then, you can just nod your head as Corey Asbury would sing, sometimes on this journey I get lost in my mistakes. It looks to me like weakness is a canvas for your strength. My story isn't over. My story's just begun, and failure won't define me because that's what my father does. Yeah, failure won't define me because that's what my father does. Lay your burdens down. Oh, here in your in the Father's house. Check your shame at the door, because it ain't welcome anymore. Oh. You're in the Father's house. And unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But furthermore, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, what you've got to bear in mind at this point is that for those exiles that have been coming from Babylon and making their way to Jerusalem, that was a city at that moment that was without walls. They were going to have to wait for a time to be able to construct the walls in order to protect the city. Nehemiah would have been given the responsibility for making certain that that would happen. What they needed at this point in the midst of life's vulnerabilities was a sense of protection. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the city being Jerusalem, the watchman stays awake in vain. We're told of a certain Native American tribe that had a rite of passage for their teenage boys. And at the age of 13, a boy would be blindfolded and led to a certain spot in the woods and be forced to sit down while the men of the tribe would then return to their camp. And when he removed the blindfold, it was the, it was the heart of the night. And he would listen to the frightening sounds, various animals. And once he felt the warmth of the sun as it would rise from the east, he would then get up, begin to look around, and the first thing he would see was his father sitting across from him. The boy's father would sit with him all night, protecting him from the animals of the wilderness. Yet through the night, he was not seen by the son, though the father remained with the son. That's what it's like with your heavenly father. And Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the father. And so now you get this sense of 
God being the one who provides direction and God the one who's providing protection. You make your way up to verse 2 and you notice thus far how in verse 1 it took the twofold emphasis upon vain and then projects it into verse 2 with what comes next. It is vain, you and I are told, that you rise up early, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil before he gives to his beloved sleep. And once you grasp the significance of verses 1 and 2, you can sleep well at night because you've got this extraordinary sense that the basis for your internal security is eternal security, knowing that on the third day Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, paving the way for you and for me to someday be with the Father. You need to know him as Lord need to know him as Savior. Verses 1 and 2 deal with the conditions that our Lord sets. But verses 3, 4, and 5, second of all, deal with the heritage that our Lord, that our Lord establishes. Now, again, they've been making their way, as we've seen in Psalms 120, up to this very moment, halfway point now, in the Songs of Ascent, and you can almost picture that this father is processing the wisdom that Solomon has already communicated via print. He uses the visual in the midst of the verbal, behold. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward like like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's, of one's youth, like arrows. Stu Weber, who has written extensively on biblical masculinity, one of my favorite pastors, now retired, um, a fellow alumnus of Wheaton College, fought in Vietnam. He now writes, as I write these words, I, I'm looking at three arrows on my desk. They differ from one another. Any archer can see that at a glance. Yet in one, in other ways, they are remarkably similar. I'm turning one in my hand now, and I'm feeling the, the heft and the balance of its shaft. And looking down its length to the round edges, its blunt head, it's a target arrow, and it's a good one. I wouldn't waste my time with anything less. It has plastic veins instead of feathers, the kind of arrow you'd want for shooting in rainy western Oregon, where I... I've been pastor and where I live. This second one now, yeah, it has a good feel to it too. It's a hunting arrow, smooth shaft, well-balanced, slightly heavier head, crafted to a literal razor's edge. It's a broad head, plastic veins intended for wet country hunting. 
The third is the kind I carry east of the mountains, over on the dry side. Basically, a, a twin of the second arrow, but it, it sports neat black and gray feathers instead of plastic. Oh. They're different, these arrows of mine. They're different. Each intended for a different impact. Each designed for a, a different sort of target. And they're also very similar. Each has been fashioned and crafted, molded and balanced. They're all intended for flight. They're all intended for a target. They're all intended for maximum impact. They're good arrows. But then again, they're not much better than the archer who notches them on the bow. They're not much better than the fullness of his draw. They're not much better than the smoothness of his release. I'm thinking of myself as a father at this point. No matter how finely crafted these arrows might be, you couldn't pull a guy off the street and expect him to let loose with a 70-pound bow and nail a target with one of them. Accuracy demands a trained, full draw, a disciplined release. And as I write these words, I'm looking at a picture on my desk. It's a picture of my children. They are meant for flight. As I read those words and reflected upon them over the course of these days, I was thinking about, I was thinking about life lessons in archery. I began to write them down from my minimal experience with it, particularly from my days at Wheaton. There is the issue of focus, concentration, where you, you've sized up the target. It's become the exclusive, the exclusive point of contact in your eyes. Furthermore, there's this sense of direction. You, you know where you want to go with this. But thirdly, there is what I will call the law of tension. It's this, the tension is always greatest at the point of release. And that's true when a parent is about to release the child from the home. There might, in fact, even be a sense of tension in the home, and one wonders, why are we going through what we're going through at this point? Because that child has reached that stage of adulthood, and there's this tension between childhood and adulthood. And now, what you've got, bow in hand, and you're about to release this arrow into the journey of life, this is where the tension is the greatest, you see. Manage it well, you do it for God's glory. 
and you're thinking about what Solomon has written at this point. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. As maybe, as maybe Solomon is thinking about that experience that David had with Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 20 as he was pondering, how do I manage the conflict that I am encountering with Saul, King Saul at this point? But then, but then Solomon's got something more to say, and it comes out of verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. For you see, the gate was the place where decisions were made, negotiations would occur, and so on. It's where Boaz could be found in relationship to Ruth and that incredible story. But as the Jews were making their way through the hills to Jerusalem, what might they be finding along the way? Notice what appears on the screen. Arrowheads, archaeological discoveries, where? In Jerusalem. In other words, this was a place where people understood this highly living tradition of what it means to be able to manage the tension of release, of how to be able to focus upon a target <coughs> and do it all with a sense of concentration that brings honor, brings honor to the Lord. And when you and I are thinking this way, what we're doing is we're embracing what this psalm is all about because this psalm is categorized as a wisdom psalm. <coughs> and wisdom comes from a Hebrew word, chokmah, which means masterful understanding, skill, expertise. These are the conditions our Lord sets in 1 and 2. You've spotted the heritage our Lord establishes through the metaphor of the arrow in verses 3 through 5. But now you inch up, don't you, into chapter or Psalm 128, verse 1 through 4. And here now is your third aspect. I want you to notice the blessing that our Lord provides. Now, as you examine this very carefully, notice with me that verses 1 through 4, they're meant to be a stanza in and of themselves, and they are bookended by the same phrasing. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. How does verse 4 end? Behold, the man shall be blessed who fears the Lord. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And the word fear here at this point carries with it the idea of instilling a sense of reverence that produces trust. This is what this wise father is doing at the table of life. He's instilling a sense of, of wisdom, all for the sake of bringing glory to God, where fear of the Lord instills a sense of trust in the Lord. Thank you, John. Now, look very carefully with me at what unfolds next in these verses. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. 
Now, this would have been significant for the people who, in the songs of ascent, are making their way up through the hills, have arrived in Jerusalem, and their feet are probably weary from the journey. And maybe some of our family members, in fact, are weary from the journey of life. Carol Schuler has something to say about that. On a cruise to Hawaii with her family, she told her parents that in the midst of a talent show on the last night, she would like to take part and say something. She, uh, she was in a situation where she had lost her leg in a motorcycle accident. And people have been watching as she maneuvered across the ship all week long. When she stood up and spoke, this is what she said. You've watched me walk this ship. And you've realized I don't walk well. I have a limp. My leg looks funny. I was in a motorcycle accident and I almost died. And then her voice broke and she couldn't go on. The entire audience, we're told, quieted down. We're told we could have heard a pin drop had we been there, but then she regrouped and continued, quote, I cannot walk as well as most of you, but that's not really what's so important. More important than the way I walk is with whom I walk. I walk with Jesus. Do you? For you see, she didn't waste her motorcycle accident. She invested her motorcycle accident. And that story has been repeated again and again and again. Because in the challenges and the tragedies of life's journey, we've got a story to share. And the next generations need to hear it as well. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. They're reflecting, the family units are, on what they've seen what they've experienced as they've made their way up the hills. They can relate to what's said. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, and you shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And what would they have seen along the way? Look at what appears on the screen. It's what I call the metaphors of life. On one side, olive trees. Where did Jesus offer tremendous perspective on what was still to come? Mount of Olives. When Jesus was in a place of agony, where was it located? Garden of Gethsemane. What does Gethsemane mean in Aramaic? The answer is the olive press. 
is valued. It's treasured. And now what this father is doing with his family at this point is that he's using a series of life metaphors, if you will, on their life journey of what they have observed and seen and experienced. And they have noted along the way the olive trees that, that are numerous in the land. And on the other side, well, what's emblazoned upon the gates of Jerusalem is the vine. And there then they have also seen the grapevines on their journey along the way. And he is using this wisely in their life journey to say, this is what you've experienced. Here are some of the metaphors of life. I want you to be able to understand the arrow, the olive branch, the vine, He's not done. He wraps up now in verses 5 and verse 6. And he's offering you and offering me the fourth aspect of wisdom for the family as imparted by the Father. Notice very carefully with me, fourthly, the future that our Lord designs. Because now what the psalmist does, he goes right back instructed by Solomon to do so, back to that ironic blessing. And in the ironic blessing, the Lord is challenging the people to say this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And now notice how this ends. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. And what he does now is he takes the national symbolism of verse 5 and connects it to what I would call a multi-generational element of verse 6. He talks about the legacy of a father. The book I have in my hand at this moment is entitled A Father's Legacy, Your Life Story in Your Own Words. Just under 200 pages, filled with opportunities for the father to write out thoughts to be passed on to the next generation. Thoughts such as, let's just pick one at this point. What was your father's attitude toward life? What was your favorite memory of your father in childhood? How would you finish this sentence? One thing my dad always said was, what was your father's relationship to God? Did he put his faith and trust in Jesus? If so, talk more about the how and the when what are you doing at this point?
You're moving beyond what I will call simply a generational approach to a multi-generational approach where having written these thoughts down, they can be imparted to future generations so they can understand how they in turn can take the wisdom of the past and apply it to the journey of the future. You pull all that together and now you can see how the multi-generational approach bears itself out. Look at these fellows that appear on the screen. Multiple generations in Israel following the principles described here in Psalm 127-128. You pull all that together. What it means is that for you and me, this is a time of life where wisdom gets imparted at the table of life. This is a time when wisdom gets imparted in the journey of life. This is the time where biblical wisdom is imprinted upon hearts for the future of life when we are no longer around. But God is. And he'll take what you have taught and apply it to the future for his glory. Joyful Father's Day. Let's stand together. And so, Father... What we want to do now is to take these four aspects of biblical wisdom, seize the imagery of life, arrows, grapevines, looking very carefully at the olive tree stories. Apply, and not merely to the present, but to the future. Because the multi-generational father is not merely thinking of the now, but the not yet. So thank you, Father, for being our father. And thank you for giving us your son who died in our place for our sins. So that having put faith and trust in Jesus, someday, someday, we'll see the Father. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.